Do you get off on the weird? Monsters. Halloween. Horror. You've heard of word porn. Car porn. Earth porn. Now prepare yourself for... Monster porn. Is this really a good idea? Weird fiction and horror podcast. Created by... The Backwards Hat Guy. Matt Cummins. Are you trying to teach psychic powers to animals? Puggles. The abomination trapped in the body of an adorable teacup piggy. Good boy, human. And myself, lead occultist, Brett Norwood. Today's story is Excuse Me, But I Need Your Face by Matt Cummins. Happy Monday, Monster Baiters. This is Matt. We'd like to say thanks for tuning into the second most popular monster porn on the net. And thanks to everyone who has taken a minute to rate and review Monster Porn on Apple Podcast. Uh, leaving a review helps us get discovered and grow. Uh, every single review helps us out a bit. So thank you for doing that, and please remember to subscribe. Matt, after the last run-in with the River Beast, I've been reevaluating my life decisions. Well, the River Beast is a font of wisdom and mind-breaking terror. Uh, So, Brett, does this explain why you're pacing around my backyard, flapping your arms like you're trying to fly? (sighs) I'm on the verge of giving up the occult arts, Matt. Maybe this is just not the vocation for me. Maybe I should have just been a pediatrician. Look, I'm giving it one last good go, and then maybe the curtain has to drop on this phase of my life. I've discovered that I'm a pitiful thaumaturgist, that is, a miracle worker. I've been reading the life of St. Teresa of Avila and found that she and her nuns could fly off the ground while saying their prayers. And I can hardly even hover. Hardly even? You know you're not hovering, right? Shh, Matt, don't make me question it. It's all faith. If I doubt, then I will stop hovering. You're not. Did you ever want to be something when you grew up? As Brett asks me this, an entire lifetime on the high seas flashes before my eyes, and myself... Upon the fully rigged galleon in my striped sailor's attire and bow and hat as I lead my crew in a jaunty chorus while we swab the gleaming deck with unison thrusts of our mops. A writer. You know this. Oh yeah, that's why we started this podcast. That and we were compelled by an eldritch horror who inhabits the body of an adorable teacup piggy. Ever since I was, you know, four, reading it as a bedtime story, I've looked up to the king. Stephen King. That's why I keep his bust on my nightstand, so he's the first thing I see when I wake up in the morning, and the last thing I see when I go to bed at night. And why my wife now sleeps on the couch. And how do you keep going, Matt? Oh, gosh. Well, uh... The... Wait! What the fuck is that? It's a pterodactyl. And now we're in its claws. This is great. Good job, Brett. All you're flapping around in my yard like an injured hatchling has attracted a super predator to pick us off. And actually, it's a pteranodon, a much larger, later genus of pterosaurs. Even my daughter could tell you that. What are you doing? I'm tickling it. Maybe it'll let us go. Up here? Fuck! Stop it, man! We don't want it to let us go way the fuck up here! Oh, chill. I can fly. You can barely even hover! 
So you agree I can hover? If there's any sorcery you can do on it, now's the time, Brett! Uh, here, well, let me try this. Azeroth Metreon Zinthos! Well? God, you gave it free speech. Why did you give that thing free speech? It's like the only spell of mine that's worked. Just just once. Just once I'd like to get through a story introduction without the threat of death or non-consensual sexual intercourse. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. So you got the story? What? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let me get my phone. It's right here. Oh, good. I was worried this podcast was going to get derailed. I remember as a child when I'd go on a long road trip with my family, sometimes when we finally rolled to a stop, I'd get out and it would feel like my legs belonged to somebody else. It wasn't that they were asleep or anything, they simply seemed to have decided that they preferred to remain still over having to lug my small child's body around. When the bus finally came to a stop, I remember that feeling with painful clarity. I, a man who had some measure of athleticism, felt nearly handicapped when I stood, my legs seeming to have decided that a 90-degree angle was where they should remain until death did us part. I managed to bang my knee on a suitcase that was sticking out in the aisle. I saw it coming as I moved down the aisle, raised my leg to slide past it, but my heavy leg had other ideas, and bang! My knee connected full force with the suitcase, and I said, Mother f-! Catching the half-formed curse with a strange sort of mouth queef, the raven-haired gypsy-looking woman whom the bag belonged to apologized, but I told her not to worry, that I was an idiot. Perhaps my legs weren't just tired. Perhaps my body knew what I refused to let myself believe and tried to sabotage my egress. Maybe if I had just given in, my legs would do an about-face and lead me in a cartoonish goose-step back to my seat. But instead, I grumbled thanks to the driver, who only looked at me impatiently as he slugged down some near-black sludge that steamed from the green thermos. On the curb, the wind blew briskly against my cheeks as I pulled my goose-down jacket up over my neck. The late-fall leaves had abandoned the reaching fingers of the skeletal branches that raked at the oppressive gray sky. A paper bag swirled by, caught up in a loop, and then ran away with the wind. I took a note out from my pocket and looked at it with my hurried scrawl, barely able to interpret what I had written. 245 South Cansbury Avenue was what I deciphered after a moment. I knew it already, though. I suppose I looked at that paper one last time just to make sure that it was all real. Five blocks was all it took to reach the office of Dr. Ballantyne, plastic surgeon. Inside, I could see the modern-looking office space that had white walls and a white concrete desk with a small, bespectacled Asian woman receptionist who seemed fast at work. I saw all of this from about ten feet outside of the office. The rest of the building was hidden behind a large wall behind the desk. There was no door that I could see, just a large white corner. I took a step, intending on pressing the secretary for info before deciding to let my legs finally do the thinking for me. I dug in my heel and left. I ended up at a Motel 6 that was roughly 20 blocks away. The bed felt like a diving board, hard but when pressure was applied there was slight give. I lay on my back, 
took out my laptop and searched out for perhaps the thousandth time Dr. Christine Valentine, plastic surgeon. She was a beautiful brunette woman with sharp, discerning blue eyes and a familiar square jawline, powerful yet beautifully feminine. This self-made woman was in high demand. Her client list was private, but she had before and after photos of a few of them, and she had worked miracles, it appeared. She would take the average-looking woman and slim their waist, expand their hips, tits, and lips, turning them into something specifically more Angelina Jolie-like than they had been previously. The augmentation was obvious when you saw the photo side by side, but if you covered up the old photo and looked at the new one, it seemed as though you were looking at someone wholesome and beautiful. My God, I thought. She is a creator, and the thought brought with it a horror that raised its ugly head during the night after I fell asleep. I didn't remember the nightmare, but I knew I had it by the soaked sheets and the jade-green eyes that faded into the darkness as the sleep paralysis gave way to consciousness. It happened quickly. My chest had been heavy, my body completely immobilized, and a dark presence watched me from the dark upper corner with those insane glowing eyes. The eyes were not those of a cat or the cartoonish glow of a creature in the 80s horror flick. No, those eyes were very human, and the whole of them was visible. The irises, the pupils, and the strange purple-green hue of the afterglow that permeated what should have been whites. They faded, and then daylight came in, as the darkness gave way in a matter of moments. It always happened that way. My one consolation was that I didn't remember it this time. Though, if I closed my eyes, I'd be able to recall the recurring dream, scene by scene. The next day, I found myself standing in the same spot before driving down the street and finding a small diner. I sat there for the better part of three hours, pecking at my keyboard and trying to pretend I had some reason to be there other than the fact that I could see the offices where she worked. At 6 p.m., several nurses left through the front door. Then the receptionist left. Ten minutes later, a black sedan pulled out from the entrance of the below-ground private parking garage and turned down the street towards the diner. I felt around in my pocket for some cash and came out with a wadded 20. It was more than I wanted to pay for a slice of pie and some coffee, but I couldn't wait. I laid the 20 on the counter and shouted, Thanks! at the receptionist. She seemed not to hear, but the cook, who I could see through the order window behind her, flashed a big grin, one incisor missing, and shot a thumbs up in my direction. I ordered an Uber when a young, effeminate man pulled up and said, Are you John? I hopped into his blue decades-old Jetta and told him the address. Her home address had been much more difficult to come by than her business address had been. In a world where it seems you can find anyone who isn't intentionally hiding after just a few Google searches, it had taken several weeks of digging to find out where Christine lived. I had the Uber drop me off about three blocks away. I didn't want to draw too much attention to myself if I once again decided that I needed to tuck tail and run. What am I doing here? The thought seemed stuck on loop. The house was a large Victorian-styled home that had four large white stone columns in the front. There were modern elements in the home's design as well. Where there may have been circular structures in a more traditional Victorian home, this one chose sharp geometric designs and pitches. It appeared eclectic, as though the mind behind the design had wanted to push the boundaries between mixing mediums and styles. The scorched cedar siding on the front ran horizontal, and then either a metal or panel siding of some kind had vertical lines above it. Everything other than the scorched cedar and one bluish oxidized copper accent was bright white. As I walked past the house, 
a black sedan pulled up in the long, narrow driveway. A woman of average height stepped out, and from here I could see that she looked nearly like her mother. That jawline was unmistakable. It had been the defining characteristic of my family for generations. I felt my knees go weak. For the first time since the night when her mother died, I experienced something like real horror. I bet you thought I spoke to her, didn't you? I can see it now. The next thing that you were expecting me to say and do was to walk up and say, Hello, Christine, and then fumble for some words before eventually saying, I'm your father. Well, on that end, I disappointed horribly. I froze, like in one of those dreams you have when some impending doom is launching towards you and all you have to do is step away, but you can't. You find your feet and limbs inexplicably frozen and you realize that you are paralyzed, but everything inside you screams that you should run. I experienced something close to that, but it was brief. She parked in the front of the home, which led me to believe that she wasn't staying long. I didn't want to disrupt her evening, so I walked up to the door and laid a note on the front step in a large white envelope. I could say that I had carried it for just this reason, but I'd be lying. I carried the note because I knew I'd chicken out. What if she rejected me on the spot? What if seeing me sent her into some sort of regression that took a toll on her relationships and career? What if I brought back some horrible memory of being young and feeling so alone and abandoned? Worst, what if she remembered? What if? The note said, Christine, my name is Jonathan Reeker. It is likely that that name means nothing to you. It is better that it shouldn't at this point. But in the case that it does, then you know, and I am sorry. I'm only here for a short time, and I know you are incredibly busy. This is likely a long shot, but will you meet with me at the diner up the street from your office tomorrow at either 8 a.m. or 6 p.m.? I will be there at both times. God, how lame was that? My first time reaching out to my only child, and I leave her some half-assed note that sounds like the beginning of an espionage novel. Well, we do what we can, I suppose. Something like that, anyways. How do you explain why you put your three-year-old daughter up for adoption after her mother died? Under normal circumstances, I would have stammered and stumbled, but these were not normal circumstances. Or at least they hadn't been. No, what happened to her mother was somewhere near the line of the breakaway point of insanity. I had been a psychiatrist, and a damn good one if you chose to measure those things on merit or in the good old-fashioned American way, wealth. I had plenty of all of those things. I had made a killing on the thriving upper class of an up-and-coming small community on the West Coast. It's interesting to me now to see the convergence of liberalism and wealth leading directly to my prosperity. To cut it down to brass tacks, I lived in an area where it was no longer hip to believe in Jesus. What I mean is this. For the longest time in human history, people tried to purge their inner demons through religion and absolution, or through indulgence. People in the modern times chose neither, or so they thought. I would argue now that much of psychiatry is indulgence. I would argue that people indulge themselves in the disorders we create for them, and they indulge themselves in the medicine that we give. There are people who need medicine, and nearly all of the disorders are real, but for many it's like going to the hospital for migraines and leaving with opioids. 
the faith in medicine and science was, as far as I could tell, a sort of indulgence. Now, I had standards, and I didn't push prescriptions or get caught up in any of that crap that some of the drug reps would try to get you with, saying on the down low that the drug companies would give you a side deal if you were one of their top prescribers or dealers if we're cutting the shit. No, I didn't deal copious amounts of drugs through my prescription pad. But I was the desperate housewife's value man. Susanna, or Sue, my wife, worked in HR for a large local retailer. We made a healthy six figures a year, several times over, and had a nice big house. Then we found out we were going to have a baby, so in the most American way, we decided that the big house wasn't big enough for the three of us, so we upgraded to a huge house, damn near a mansion. And why not? I could nearly pay for it in cash. Our personal lives at this point were going just fine. But my business life was suffering. I had money and a very good practice. It was everything I thought that I wanted. But it turned out that prescribing pills and counseling people whose biggest troubles were that another man's younger, perkier wife looked better in a cocktail dress wasn't professionally fulfilling. Seriously. The wealthy housewife culture of an entire white, upper-class neighborhood could be upended by the introduction of one young blonde with a great set of tits. I didn't see any of the husbands. Men were slower to come around to mental health practices, but it didn't take long to see that a young blonde with great tits caused them as much anxiety as it did their wives. Just of a different kind. Of course, there were pool boys and lawn boys and mailmen as well. The infidelity was a well-connected network. I had often joked, but was quite serious about it, that it was too bad that I couldn't diagnose and treat STDs as well. I could have been a one-stop shop for your mind, your dope, and your junk. One day, after having visited with Carol, a curvy 50-year-old woman who was in fear that she was finally aging out, as she put it, she thought that she would soon be resigned to hanging out with the other old blue hairs, despite her health and good looks. I had a new woman, a girl really, come into the office, and she had short black hair that had a bluish tint of being dyed once. I had been expecting to take the afternoon off to go golfing, a new sport that I was trying on but was unsure would fit. The girl had piercing gray eyes with the slightest tint of green to them. Her neck had a vine tattoo that curled around to the left side and then disappeared down her collarbone and into her cleavage. Other than the occasional hypochondriac child, I never saw anyone young. I never saw anyone as interesting as this young woman. She had the trappings of a rebellious youth caught up in the counterculture, but her eyes were somehow older and knowing. I had the immediate impression of an old, troubled soul. I decided to take on one more patient that day. It had been so long since I had done anything different, anything original, yes, that is how I chose to see it, that I decided to let her tell me her story and why she was there. She said her name was Mist. I didn't press for whatever it may have been short for. I assumed that was a question that she frequently explained to strangers, so I just let it go. I watched her with her beautiful but strange gray-green eyes as she looked around the room, glancing towards the door. Her face was mostly calm, and her voice was steady, but her hands. When she didn't have them pinned between her knees, they were shaking. I asked her where she was from, and she told me, Oh, just down the road a ways. Well, Mist, I didn't have you on my calendar, but I can say 
it is nice to meet you. If I told you how my days normally went, you would probably be fast asleep in the chair before I finished my tale. However, I didn't have you on the calendar, and I don't make a habit. You see, I, I can't really make a habit. It's typically frowned upon in my profession of taking people on who just spontaneously walk into the office. I can see you're anxious, and that's okay. It takes guts to walk into a place for help, but I need to know, simply, what brought you here today? She bit her lip and nodded at me and then said, Do you believe in the devil? I didn't know what to say to her, but I said I didn't really know. I mean, I had been raised that way, but as an adult, the idea of heaven and hell seemed antiquated. I had put my mind towards science, and I hadn't looked back. She nodded and said, that's okay, I, I don't really know if I believe in the devil, but she trailed off, looking toward the door before starting again. I have dreams. Bad ones. Kinds where I wake up and I don't know what's real. Night terrors? I asked. Terrors, she said in a dismissive tone. Sure, Doc. You can call them terrors, she said, looking toward the door again and wiping her eyes with the back of her hands. I fall asleep when I can. I wake up, usually in a different room. The same room, but different from where I fell asleep. You sleepwalk. Walk, she said again, being dismissive. I don't sleepwalk, but I do travel in my sleep, or have for the past three weeks. I don't understand what you mean, I began. I fall asleep in a fucking motel. And I wake up at home in my bedroom. My car is still at the motel. My clothes are still there. But I wake up in my fucking room. I'm there, pinned down to my bed. I can't move a goddamn muscle except for my eyeballs. And I feel a weight on my chest. And she is there. She is old and wrinkled and smells of death. And she sits on my chest and cackles. She runs her hands all over me. And then I see him. He's... There was a sound from my office door, a thump, and she broke off in a cry. Mist, we're fine. It was probably just Nancy, I said. And to assuage her, I went to the door and poked my head out and said, Nancy? But my receptionist had gone home, or so it had seemed. I was alone in the office with Mist. There was a chair out in the middle of the room that was knocked over. I went and tipped it back up, checked the door, which was locked, and then my heart suddenly pounding poked my head into the bathroom. There was no one else in the small office other than Mist and I. I went back in. A chair was tipped over, but Carol, the woman you must have passed coming in, brings her grandson with her. He has a tendency to drag around the chairs while he waits for his nana. A bit of a hyper child, I'm afraid. Must have just been one of the chairs that was on the verge of tipping over when the heater kicked on, I said. And I realize now how strange all of that justification sounds, but I had never once seen a lick of evidence that there was anything, any phenomenon, that was unnatural. Mist only looked at me before continuing her tale. I wake up in my apartment, and the thing, the hag, she would sit on my chest, run her hands all over my naked body. I was always naked every time, touching me, inspecting me. Then she would. Mist began to sob before saying, she would inspect me, you know, like like my gynecologist would do. And then she would fade away, and I'd see him there in the corner, and he would rush at me, and... And, and then what? I asked, 
the hairs on my arms standing on end. This poor girl had been going through something terrifying. I was already putting together that there had been some sort of repressed sexual trauma. I would give her some, as yet to be determined, anxiety meds. But then she said, Then I wake up wherever I fell asleep. And spread her hands out in front of her. You see, it is all just a bad dream then. Recurring and disturbing, no doubt. But a dream nonetheless. No, it's not a dream, doctor. Every time it happens, I piss myself. I wake up dry. Then when I go home, I find my sheets soaking wet. In my field, we have this thing that we do. When we hear something that doesn't make sense, we ignore it. Because if it can't be real, then it can't be real. It makes me wonder now how many people out there truly are being harassed by some beast, some ancient spirit that preys on the torment of men and women. So Miss went on to tell me that she had been visiting a couple of priests. The first couple prayed with her and told her how many Hail Marys to do and what other ceremonious acts that she needed to perform that she wasn't familiar with. The last one she went to, a Father Miguelki, had told her that it wouldn't hurt her to see a doctor and that a couple of the women in his congregation had come to see me. So that's how I met her. I loved my wife. And that led possibly to what happened next. I saw Mist again, and her story remained the same. This time she said that the thing, a thing she referred to as him, had been in the darkest upper corner of the room. And it had nearly reached her. She said he didn't touch her, but she could feel coldness coming from his body as he came at her. Can you describe him? I asked her. And her reply was simply, Yes, he's a shadow. And sometimes his eyes glow green, and sometimes he's utter darkness. I began to think about mist during my other sessions. I would see women come in with their $500 dresses, get out of their $50,000 vehicles with their giant fake tits hanging out for the world to see, and I would think, this is exactly what it looks like when you have everything. Mist had nothing, and in that way she reminded me so much of the Sue that I had married. Sue had been an artist when we first met. She didn't have a thing or a care in the world, but she had been utterly herself. She was vulnerable and open and beautiful. She was still beautiful, but instead of the college girl who reminded me of Mist, she was now a woman in her mid-thirties who reminded me more every day of the women I counseled. She had the big fake tits, the bee-stung lips, and a reliance on Prozac. She had diminished right in front of my eyes by becoming everything we thought that we would have wanted her to be. I began meeting with Mist weekly always later in the day and many times after Nancy had left the office. I had yet to prescribe her anything but a sleep aid, which she had said helped a little, but the dreams kept occurring. Surely a young woman like yourself has a significant other. What do they think of this? I asked. She lit up a cigarette. I had begun letting her smoke so long as she sat next to the window and we were able to push the smoke out with a fan. I don't have anybody, she said, and I wanted to say, not true, you have me. I felt nearly sick at the thought, but, but there she was. Today she'd worn a sundress that stopped at her knees. 
She had a light, open sweater on that was unbuttoned. Her small, natural breasts were pushed up into showing a slight but alluring amount of cleavage. Her gray-green eyes were red with tears. I don't think I can touch anyone, she said. I think that's how it happened to me. I stayed silent to let her finish. I felt a jealous pang that I tried to ignore. What do you mean? Miss told me a story about a party she went to. She had been doing some work with a local band and had gone to an after party. A group of men from another band had been there. One of these men was tall, bearded, with cool blue eyes. He was quiet, but kept looking at her throughout the party. Eventually, he came up to her and they began to speak. The attraction she felt was immense and immediate. They spoke and drank, and then he gave her a pill, and then he took one himself. She thought it was ecstasy, and she supposed that it felt that way at first. But what she remembered next was, as she said, it was like looking through a kaleidoscope at your memories. There would be one of him touching me, and then many. He pulled off my clothes. I suppose I wanted him to. I felt like I wanted everything, the whole world of sensual pleasures. But the room that had bright colors, orgasmic colors, became dark. And with the same intensity, the light was gone. It was dark and cold, and then I don't remember what happened. I woke up, partially dressed, in the bed. But it was as if someone else had put my clothes back on. My thong was on backwards. My bra was hooked incorrectly. I was wearing my tank top, and my pants were at the foot of the bed, folded with the shoes. I saw this immediately as the culprit trauma. She didn't remember. That much was likely true but I imagined she could remember if she allowed herself to. Something had happened to her. Maybe it was the drugs, and maybe it was rape. Maybe a combination of the two, but whatever it was, it seemed to me at the time that it was the cause. I was horribly mistaken, and what I did next sealed my fate in the issue. I reached out with my hand, having leaned forward in my seat, and I wiped a tear from her cheek. You see, I said softly, feeling my attraction towards her swell. Telling myself I was going to cross a line. I had already crossed a line, but there it was. She neither sat still nor recoiled from my touch. Instead, she turned into it, pressing her cheek into my palm and rubbing it in nearly feline movement. You see, you can be touched, I said again. Before I knew it, we were making love on my desk. Her natural and lean body was a revelation, and I drank it in. She slid her dress to her waist, exposing her small, erect nipples, and then she bucked against me, wanting, needing. Afterward, I told her that I was sorry, and she asked, What for? I told her I didn't know exactly. I guessed that I was more sorry for myself, if I were being honest. She hadn't done anything wrong, after all. She didn't say much, and that made me nervous. But she seemed preoccupied, as though she couldn't take her eyes off of the dark upper corner of the room. The anxiety seemed to return, and she quickly put her clothes back on and said, It's me who should be sorry. I think I'm okay now. I don't know what that means for you, though. She gave me a look then, one that seemed to say everything, and then nothing at all. She left, and I never saw her again after that. I didn't know how well I'd be able to live a lie until I did. If she had asked me, 
I don't think I'd have been able to look her in the eyes and tell her that everything was fine, but Sue never asked me anything, so I went on pretending. One night, not long after Mist had walked out of my office and out of my life, it seemed as though she had been some brief, strange dream that I could barely remember, no matter how hard I tried to hold on to it. Late one night, I woke to find myself entirely paralyzed. Sue lay next to me, asleep. I could see her mouth open and her eyes closed. There was an immense weight on my chest, and it took every ounce of strength I could muster to turn my eyes up and see that there was a ghoulish figure, an old woman whose gray hair was falling out in patches. Her wrinkled skin and yellowish eyes were looking not at me, but at Sue next to me. She reached towards Sue, tracing her hands over Sue's body without touching her. I felt my toe begin to move, and then, sluggishly, I could move my hand. I tried to reach toward the woman, but I couldn't. Then she was pulling down the covers and unclasping Sue's bra. She seemed to be sizing up Sue's breasts and nipples. She seemed displeased with her large, fake breasts. But then she slid the covers further down and placed one hand on Sue's bare navel. Sue made a little cooing noise, still asleep, as though the hand had been cold. Then the hag slid her hands into Sue's panties and thrust deep inside of her. Sue moaned at this, as though she were having some sort of sexual dream. The woman felt this way inside of my wife and outside. My God, I thought, she's inspecting her her womb. I wanted to scream, and then I saw him. He was there in the corner of the room. A shadow, a mass, clung to the upper corner of the room like a spider drawing itself inward, preparing to strike. I could see the green irises burning bright. It watched the hag, and then, when the hag turned to it, grinning and giving a single nod, the man rushed towards the bed, climbing down the walls with long, spindly arms and legs, crawling like a feral human or an ape across the floor, and then up the bed, clawing and grabbing at my thighs, my flesh, and then, oh God, entering me, becoming me. I have memories too, just like those that Mist described to me. Kaleidoscopic memories of my wife, visions of flesh twisting and contorting in pleasure and pain. In some of those memories, it's just me and her. In others, the hag is there and the shadow creature. I can see her screaming, wanting, and fearing. Then it was over. The next morning, I awoke to find Sue sitting wrapped in a robe with her coffee in her hands. Her face was pale and her eyes had bags beneath them. She trembled. Honey, what, what happened? I said dumbly, the night having been its own kind of sedative I could barely remember. But there it was. She only looked at me. I leaned to touch her, to comfort her, and she didn't just move away, but she flinched. Susie, what's wrong, babe? I asked. She only continued to look at me. For the next three weeks, this is how our lives went. I would wake up with these strange memories of Sue, the hag, and the shadow man, and in each dream, the shadow man became stronger, more real, more there until it was nothing more than me watching him have his way with my wife. Each day I would find her in the house, scared, but she wouldn't leave or flee. She cared for Christine and watched me from a distance. 
her skin wrinkled. Her eyes seemed to fade as her hair, oh my god, her, her hair, it turned mostly gray. After the second week, it was beginning to come out in clumps. I saw her laughing and weeping as she pulled handfuls of her own hair from her decaying scalp. I no longer saw my wife, but instead the ghoul, the hag. She stood in front of me smiling, resembling my wife in a distant way as you might expect seeing some old west photograph of a distant relation from a boxcar from another time and another place. Then, three weeks to the day that I had slept with mist, I awoke to find that my wife had taken an entire bottle of pills. There had been enough of her left for that. I met Christine on a windy and rain-soaked afternoon. I showed up wearing a peacoat and jeans. I hadn't the forethought or energy to bring a raincoat or umbrella. Christine smartly wore both. Seeing her sitting in the booth by the front window in the diner, I knew in a glance that she knew who I was. There are traits that even by the age of three you will have for your entire life. In that moment, all of the memories of her, memories that had been blocked by this, this corruption of my being, came rushing back into focus. I saw her there saw her clearly, and I remembered for the first time in more than ten years the night she was born. I remembered her first tooth, her first word, and her first step. I remembered how she looked at me when I read to her in the lamplight. I had just started the first Harry Potter book when it all happened. I remembered how this little girl had been my anchor into the real world, and how her happiness mattered enough to make all of those things my disenchantment with my business life, and even her mother seemed bearable. I had forgotten all of that over the years. I sat across from her, hopelessly wondering how I would explain it to her. Surely, she could have never known. And if I told her the truth, she would think I was mad, insane. How could I do this to her? There was nothing good that could come of this. Had I waited nearly 30 years to try to ruin my daughter's life as though abandoning her hadn't been hard enough? And now I had come to find her strong and thriving and I needed to finish her off? I just sat, realizing the gravity of my mistake when suddenly she took my hand and I saw, for a moment, a green glint in her blue eyes and I felt my body go numb, paralyzed. Hello, father, she said, as a shadow passed over her face. Did you really think he had been after you or mommy? Christine asked, and it wasn't her face. For a moment, it was the hag, and then the shadow man, and then it was Sue and Mist, and then my own. I began to panic, completely paralyzed. She took out a small black bag of surgical tools. She leaned across the table and whispered in my ear, Excuse me, Father, but I will need your face.
You know I could use a sandwich. That's what you're thinking about right now? How are we going to escape this pteranodon before it reaches its nest and feeds us to its brood in chunks? That's down the road, and I'm more of a live-in-the-moment guy. Let's put a little more Viking in the Tabata! Brent, what are, you, what are you looking at? Hmm. Is this thing wearing jamberry? Got it, ping-pong! It's a dojo of long nerves! Matt, it seems we're approaching an island. What did the Pteranodon just say? Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself! Whoa, what was that? Threat to public discourse detected. Initiating deplatforming protocol. It's the Zuckinator. Where did he come from? He just tackled the pterosaur out of the blue. We're at 20,000 feet. Look, he's moderating the Pteranodon's freedom of speech. He's punching it in the head. That's what I mean. Ah! Ah! Right toward the island. Well, I must say, this is not where I saw myself in 34. What do you mean? I mean in the land of the lost having a tiki party with tyrannosaurs and hula skirts. That's what I mean. And me neither. But life throws you a curveball sometimes. And come on, Matt. Myrtle here is a Carnotaurus. Even your daughter could tell you that. Good day, Monsterbaiters. Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn, put down that dinosaur erotica and give Monster Porn a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute, and it helps us out a whole lot. Studies have shown that Monsterbaiters who review Monster Porn podcasts on Apple Podcasts live five times longer on average than people who died five times quicker. Be sure to visit the official Monster Porn store at monsterpornpodcast.com store. Try on our t-shirts, and your mother is sure to comment on just how sharp you're dressing these days. Be sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast app. And follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's it. Until the shark angels come, stay weird. And Godspeed, strange cowboy. Shh, Matt, don't make me question it. It's all faith. If I doubt, then I will stop hovering.
bitch, you are not in the air right now. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe I should have just a minute. Ever since I was a wee little one. Oh, they're always after me, Lucky Charms. Okay, I've got to take the wee little out of there. I will not, like, some kind of half-ass Irish accent will come out of my mouth. But instead, I grumbled. Thanks to the driver. Driver? Five blocks was all it took to reach the office of Dr. Christine. Shit, I gotta change her name. That's a weird name. <laughs> At 6 p.m., several nerves. Nerf. Nerfshes? In a world where it seems you can find anyone who isn't intentionally hiding after just a few ghoul. The ghoul. The scorched cedar siding on the front ran horizontal. Horizontal. <laughs> I would argue now that much of psychiatry, 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 there are people who need medicine and nearly all of the disorders, disorders, (laughs) men were slower to come around to mental health practices, but it didn't take long to see that a young blonde with a great set of, (laughs) there's just that line too much, too much tit. Oh, man. <laughs> Wait, what was it? The come on me tits? The come on me tits, yep. The C, the Matt, um... The Matt Cummins come on the, me tits. The trademark. C, um... Oh, my. C, um... M, Y, T, it's. <laughs> it's like when you have to spell something out so the child or the dog doesn't know what you're saying. <laughs> That's how we have to treat the internet. One day, after having visited with Carol, a particularly... Particularly... <laughs> I'm just going to take particularly out. <laughs> We're particularly not saying that anymore. You just said it perfectly. Then. I know. I know. Because I'm not thinking about it. <laughs> it's typically frowned upon in my profession of taping, of taping people. <laughs> Can't tape them to the chair. I like this profession. <laughs> Where did he come from? He just tackled the pterosaur out of the thin air, out of the blue, out of the blue air, blue sky. We're in the air. Ah! Ah, that hurt my ear. <laughs> Through the headphones. <laughs> All right, one more time. 